So, um, uh, of you again, uh, for some of you here for the first time the, in the afternoon, my name is Ricky Burdett, Director of LSE Cities and uh, Professor in the Department of Sociology, uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you back to the uh, continuing day uh, in celebration of Richard Sennett's uh, work and writings and his influence on very uh, different aspects of the social and the built world. Uh, I've been very lucky to be a fellow traveler of Richard's for over a decade. In fact, we started the Cities program, uh, now run by, run by Fran Tonkis, um, here nearly 12 years ago, and uh, we've been continuing our plotting uh, exercises. Now, um, in order to celebrate Richard's work and following on, obviously, from the session that many of you have just heard, uh, and in order to focus on what is for those of us who are involved in making cities and um, involved in, uh, on the side of policy, on the side of design. Um, we've all learned one thing, I think, from Richard, who probably you could say learned uh, from um, uh, Jane Jacobs uh, back in the 60s and 70s, which is uh, the fundamental uh, debate and discussion and the fundamental difference that uh, is now being had as a result of Richard's writing is the linking of the physical world with the visual world. And probably this image behind me uh, summarizes that. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, now, as uh, chair of this uh, session, I thought that I should just be true to this uh, uh, intellectual um, statement and use words and images in order to just prompt a discussion. I'm not going to give a talk at all. There are those who are much better placed than me to respond to these themes, but I thought that I would actually use this very, very simple device of putting up a quote uh, by Richard. Uh, I'm not going to ask him to read it since he's now here. I will. Uh, and some images uh, to provoke a discussion around really four themes which uh, many of us here think have been very uh, significant in the writings of Richard over time. Uh, and um, the panelists that we have, I think, are absolutely apt to discuss them. And this is the uh, implications of his thoughts on the making of a democratic city, the making of a diverse city, the making of the tactile city, what's it actually feel like, and uh, the interesting concept of the making of the incomplete city, something which is ongoing. Uh, I have to thank Susie Hall, who uh, collaborated with me in putting uh, both the presentation and the ideas together. Now, the three and, uh, let's say, a half or three-plus speakers we have uh, are uh, probably quite well-known to many of you. Uh, Jeff Mulgan, who's uh, on the far, my far left, uh, is director of the Young Foundation. Young Foundation is a long-established organization, uh, established, in fact, in East London, but he's been running it now for a number of years uh, and totally renewing it. And basically what it's about is bringing together insights, innovation, entrepreneurship to meet social needs. That's the whole concept behind it. Uh, he was, in fact, the founder and uh, the director of the think tank Demos that many of you know was highly influential in shaping the ideas of the past government and in, uh, up until 2004 played uh, a number of very significant roles in the British government including being the director of the government strategy unit and the head of policy in the prime minister's office and note the date he left in 2004. <laughs> Um, Richard Rogers, uh, who is sitting next between David Adjaye and Richard Sennett, 
is an architect and urbanist. He's the founder of a firm which is now called Roger Sterk Harbor Partnership. And he's probably designed some of what I would call the most canonical buildings of the late 20th century and the early 21st century, including the Pompidou Center, Lloyd's, but also incredibly delicate and uh, significant buildings like the Maggie Center for Cancer Patients, uh, built only a few years ago, and Terminal 5, which will be familiar to many of you. He's been uh, uh, advisor to... <laughs> What do you think that's about? <laughs> I like the word delicate. Oh, no. He's been advisor to uh, a number of mayors around the world, a long time with Ken Livingstone and a very short time with Boris Johnson. Um, and he was the, the chairman of the Urban Task Force, which I think uh, has had a major influence in terms of the shaping and the regeneration of British cities. And David Ajay, who is sitting uh, three to my left, is a designer with a keen interest in the relationship between architecture and culture, um, very close friend and, uh, of all of us here. And what he's done in the last few years actually designed a completely new type of building, which is uh, known as the Idea Store. We'll come back to that. But also has been responsible for a number of buildings in East London, such as the Stephen Lawrence Center uh, and others. Uh, last year, with others, a very important and exciting project uh, which will be built at the heart of Washington behind the White House, which is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And he has a few mixed clients, from some artists uh, to the Noble Foundation in Oslo, where he built uh, an important uh, structure there, and Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. so quite a mixture. Enormous interest in. <laughs> enormous interest in. Uh, uh, not just architecture and urban context uh, as a designer, but also as a keen observer and curated a beautiful exhibition on urban Africa. So what I'm going to do now is just start the discussion around these uh, four themes. And I'm just going to read out a quote and then show literally one or two images after them and ask a number of the panelists in turn to comment and you can be anyone. I think you can I'm be any, uh, you can be Polly or someone right. else. Now, I think this is a significant point, and it follows on on some of the themes we were hearing before about what constitutes the public realm, the res publica. Now, the res publica in Latin in many ways means public things, as you know. A res publica stands in general for those bonds of association and mutual commitment which exist between people who are not joined together by ties of family or intimate association. It is the bond of a crowd, of a people, of a polity, rather than the bonds of family or friends. As in Roman times, participation in the res publica is most often a matter of going along, and the forums for this public life, like the city, are in a state of decay. This was written in 1977 in one of um, Rich's first books, uh, The Fall of Public Man. And I thought perhaps, Jeff, I could turn to you to comment on this notion uh, of the res publica and how in your work and your thinking some of these issues are of significance. Are you going to show the images now or later? Yeah, I am sure. going to show. Yeah. It's the one we had before. And I was then going to be naughty and show an image of what not to do. Right. Or what constitutes a world which perhaps, Jeff, even though you work there, uh, is the anti-res publica. It's not a place which uh, 
creates or uh, in a way empowers that level of engagement we were talking about a moment ago in the quote. Well, well let, <coughs> let me return to the, the quote. I think it was George Bush who said the problem with the French was that they had no word for entrepreneur. And the, 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 the problem with, with English is it doesn't actually have many words for the things Richard is most interested in. Flaneur, bon viveur, res publica, uh, and so on. And the, the book which this is from, The Fall of Public Man, I think it's worth saying is an extraordinary book like so many of Richard's, because it is a work of literature as much as social science. It wanders down alleys and byways, talks about clothes and style and speech, but also has a, a, a very sort of profound, uh, sometimes quite simple message, which again, like many of his books, is a story of, of decay, an elegy, uh, a lament, comparing that era with the, the, the Roman Empire, the time of Augustus, when the old civic public, republican ideals uh, had been emptied of meaning. People still, in a sense, used some of the same rituals, but they had been uh, hollowed out. And he's warning the same has happened to uh, a modern industrial, post-industrial society. And he's also at the same time attacking the counterculture, the, the radicals, uh, accusing them of really betraying public shared ideals and turning to a narcissism uh, of the self looking inward for truth rather than into anything uh, shared. And it's a, it's a moment in a way then, sort of a few years after the 60s, when uh, in some ways it was a very unfashionable stance to take, but perhaps one which looks more, uh, more sane now. I think it's particularly interesting to talk about this, and I'll come on to, to the public spaces in a moment, because we're only a few weeks away from an extraordinary display in some ways of public man. Three political leaders, going through public debates for four and a half hours in front of an audience, very kind of classical format almost. They couldn't, at least to a degree, resort to sound bites. Uh, they had to, in a sense, set out uh, arguments. The tone of debate, pretty sober, pretty serious. They all talked about the national interest uh, all, all the time, rather than appealing to that much to self-interest or uh, narcissism, and quite a sort of high-flown rhetoric. And then at the election, a week ago, today, was it? Yesterday? Most people, when polled, said they voted out of a sense of duty. Again, very sort of classical public man uh, ethos, actually rather uh, thriving against all odds uh, uh, in our society. Seen through another lens, the debates were happening in a TV studio, not in the city. The audience were instructed to remain silent all the way through and weren't allowed any interaction with the politicians. So was this a simulation of the Republic or was it actually uh, its revival? Now in, in The Fall of Public Man, Richard talks about a, a, a space only a few hundred meters north of here, the Brunswick Center, as really the epitome then of places like Canary Wharf, which appeared to be public spaces, but in fact all people were doing was walking from one soulless shop to another soulless shop and again, they were sort of simulations of publicness, but without any of the spirit, the soul, the meaning, the interaction of, as it were, the classical uh, ideals. And in your account, this is a story of decay in which Canary Wharf makes total sense, and perhaps a Rome which ends up with Silvio Berlusconi makes perfect sense <laughs> as the story of decline, decay, and what starts off being real meaningful, ending up as a simulation that's in fact hollowed out. But I think what's always fascinating about Richard's work is the sort of paradoxes and the ambiguities 
in them. There's nearly always a spirit of melancholy and lament and loss, corrosion of character, injuries of class, and so on. And yet, as you can see, he's a very optimistic man. He smiles uh, all the time, radiates um, a, a sort of positivity. <laughs> There's a paradox, too, in the descriptions of city life in all of these books. On the one hand, the city is where you come to be liberated, to find yourself, to, to realize new identities, even though, or perhaps even because, the city is where you are anonymous, alienated, uh, and in some other respects, uh, crushed. And he tells in many of his books of people losing a grasp of their own lives, the narratives of their lives, their, their meanings, um, partly because of the dynamics of capitalism and all the many ways in which prosperity takes with one hand even as it's giving you with the other hand. And yet he also talks of people as competent interpreters of their own lives. Now I think what links those is really a profound empathy or an attempt to empathize with really the human condition which makes him, as we were hearing before, a very good listener and good at following uh, the, the, the details and as I said wandering the byways. I just want to end with two questions which are really opposed by Canary Wharf, Rome and, and the fall of public man. And the first is a question which really relates this bit of Richard's work to the more recent work of the craftsman. And Bruno Latour sort of alluded to this before the break. Is the fall of public man about the loss of the spaces of public deliberation, the physical spaces in the city, perhaps the public sphere in the media, parliaments or so on, or is it also actually a decay of the skills of being a citizen, of being a public leader? Uh, do you need 10,000 hours to be a mayor, to be a really good, uh, in a sense, embodiment of uh, pub publicness, or can anyone do it? Is it another field where expertise no longer matters, uh, and uh, and so it's the, the, the millions of amateurs perhaps gathering on on the net and so on can displace, as it were, the sort of classical ideas of leadership? I like us to come back to that because one of the odd things I do in my organisations and Canary Wharf, we often run training programmes for young leaders of all kinds from right across East London, trying in fact not 10,000 hours but to build up the skills of engagement of publicness because we think without those everything else doesn't really work. And then there's a second question again, is this story of decay and decline correct or plausible? Again, look at simulated TV debates, look at ersatz public spaces, and it's quite easy to believe it. But if, again, you look at this area, which I know very well because uh, my, my organization is based there, in the borough of Tower Hamlets, Canary Wharf may be quite cut off, but there's an extraordinary vibrancy of public activity. Uh, in the last few years, there's been an election not just for, for young mayor, with double the turnout of the local council elections. There are participatory budgeting exercises in every area of Tower Hamlets, which are the equal of any in the world in terms of the levels of engagement. We've just been through an extraordinary election campaign. One of my colleagues was voted elected MP. Uh, thousands of people taking part on all sides, knocking on doors, and really live arguments uh, about the issues. And, of course, alongside the face-to-face -face sort of polis, Raised publica, the online life of Twitter and Facebook and so on, every bit as uh, alive, and in this case involving people in Bangladesh 
uh, as well as right across um, uh, other parts of the world, Somalia uh, and so on. So I think the story of decay perhaps isn't quite accurate, but then my very final comment is this. Does that mean that Richard was wrong in the fall of public man, or was he in fact being the absolutely ideal intellectual who by so forcefully warning us about what we might be about to lose ensures we don't actually lose it? Thank you for that. Um, do you want to answer those two questions? Because in a way, in what you've just said, what you're experiencing, say, in East London, I'll come to you in a second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no need. No. No. But I do want to say Jeff, do, do, do you want to just draw, draw that out? You've posed these two questions, but clearly you have a sense. I think there are skills, well, to my first question, I think there are skills of being a citizen, being a, a part of public life, their skills in a democracy, every citizen needs to have at least some of those skills and people you want to put into positions of leadership, decision making and compromise need even more skills and in a very diverse, messy, difficult city like East London you actually need even more of those skills than anywhere else. And perhaps if I asked Richard Rogers just to, to comment on the issue of the relationship between public space, is, is, has there been a deterioration of the quality of public space, the design of public space over the last decades, which doesn't allow the sort of engagement that we're talking about? Surely not. Um, I would say that in the last, again, it depends where, it's a very general statement, it's a very different you can play it in different ways, but if we're talking about um, the wealthier part of the world, I suppose, um, I would say that there is certainly a much better recognition of public domain. The concept that the car can actually be squeezed and very well pompadour uh, when we first arrived in Paris, making that statement that Paris must make way for the car. I don't think anybody today would do that, which means there is a beginning, and any president or king or leader would do that without the consciousness that actually it's all about people. So I think, in one sense, I'm rather optimistic. David? Um, I, I think that I think that there is a kind of um, I think Rich is right in terms of um, um, sort of looking at it in terms of kind of relationship. Can you hear? No, we can't. Oh, sweet. yeah, sorry. I think Richard's right in terms of the relationships of the car, but there's also another thing which is which is also of concern that the public space becomes a kind of ornament almost in the city, that it almost just becomes a kind of visual um, ornament and sort of becomes vacuous of its sort of intent, and that becomes. I, I'm not sure how to kind of critique that in the sense of um, understanding how contemporary life kind of relates with that and works with that in terms of the kind of evolution of some technologies and the way we kind of use the city. But in a way, there is a kind of there's a desperate um, um, sort of uh, sort of as it were isolation sort of maybe using the word that you would use, an isolation that occurs from um, the artifice of the city. I can say that, which I think becomes something that's worth discussing. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank the three of you uh, uh, for coming. Uh, two of my favorite architects, Bonds uh, and uh, interlocutor and, and, and friend. Um, maybe it's worth reflecting on what we mean by democratic in this context. You can think about democratic as purely political process, whether people get to determine the character of the spaces in which uh, they're in. Can you hear me? Is that right? Yeah, fine. Uh, no? Don't lean, don't lean back. 
and then I'll move this here. Uh, I like to move. Uh, um, which is really a democracy about decision making. Uh, you can look at democratic space as, uh, secondly, uh, a process that has to do with uh, uh, interaction. How much do people uh, uh, relate to, to one another? How much do they talk on the street, notice each other, and so on? Which is not a political process. Uh, and a third dimension of it is uh, really the uh, uh, democracy uh, defined by the notion of skill that you have of people that feel that they're competent in a complex environment. So there's a rather more elusive notion of democracy. That is, that you are adequate to deal with complexity in your environment, that you have the skills to relate to other people. Uh, and the difference between the second and the third is that the second can be very indiscriminate. People shouting at each other are interacting. Uh, people taking knives to each other are interacting. We wouldn't quite call that democratic but it is participatory. <laughs> uh, in, in my view, this third view of democratic, of what we mean by democracy, which by the way, was the old Aristotelian notion of democracy. That is that somebody who is competent to appear in public, that's what Aristotle meant by a, a democratic uh, person, and a democratic city is one in which people are competent to appear in public, has a very specific relationship to build form. When I look at the contrast between these two photographs, and particularly when I look down here at the Pantheon uh, and the area around it contrasted to Canary Wharf, I would say that the difference between the two of them is that the built form in the first leaves ambiguous uh, whole zones around the pantheon. I'll show you exactly where they are. It's quite interesting. It's these spaces which when the pantheon was built by Hadrian. Thank you very much. It's so polite, these attacks. Come on, quick. Uh, these were spaces people didn't know how to use. They knew how to go into this temple and pray, but they didn't know what to do when they got through praying. And it developed a whole, this became, the, became an informal market. And it became a space in which Romans uh, developed a whole new set of rituals in a space which was undetermined by power in which there was no function allotted to it. It was, in Aristotle's sense, a more democratic space. The people had to learn how to use it. They had to learn how to be competent in the space. If you go to Canary Wharf, now I may be wrong, Jeff, but when I look at this big semi-circular building, or the layout of these other very large spaces, uh, they're so predetermined 
that the idea of learning how to become competent in that space, how to negotiate it, your relations with others, is precluded. To me, they're an undemocratic because they're overdetermined. And they're removing agency by providing precision. Jeff, on this point, and then we'll move on. First of all, Canary Wharf was built uh, by bypassing democracy. All of this happened by a government deciding we will actually essentially sideline all local democratic structures and just do it. And that was, in a sense, built into its, its DNA. Um, people then reacted. Just a little bit along there is where in 1994 they elected a, a BNP councillor in a reaction in some ways both against the overdetermined planners but also against this whole series of other things which were happening. I find there's still a largely dead space, as you've described, and we, we next week open a part of a building there to run various programs, so I'm living it. The time which is the exception, interestingly, some of you may have been there, is the, the marathon. And the marathon in Canary Wharf is, completely transforms its feel as the whole area is covered with people some running, obviously, but mostly just kind of milling about and doing things and taking it over. And um, in an ideal world, it would have been built more deliberately incomplete in all sorts of respect and allowed events like the marathon to help define how to let it evolve into a, an owned, a, a really owned space. But I don't think that really occurred to the people planning it, I think what I'd like to do is to take this uh, discussion a little bit further, in a way, to another step, which relates very much to this issue of uh, democratic space and how it can accommodate difference. And um, in Flesh and Stone in 1996, uh, Richard talked about the diversity, making a, a very, very detailed comment, and I think it's useful uh, to just read it out, about the village in, in New York City, in Manhattan. Uh, I don't have an image of it, but I have an image of London, which I'll show in a second. Uh, but I think we all know what uh, we might be seeing. But hear what Richard says. Yet one's eye often provides misleading social information about diversity. Jane Jacobs saw people in the village so tightly packed together that they seemed to have fused. On McDougall Street, though, the tourist action consists mostly of people looking at one another. The Italians occupy the space above the street-level shops, talking to their neighbors in opposite buildings as though there were nobody there, below. Hispanics, Jews, and Koreans interweave along Second Avenue. But to walk down Second Avenue is to pass through the ethnic palimpsest in which each group keeps neatly to its turf. Difference and indifference coexist in the life of the village. The sheer fact of diversity does not prompt people to interact. Now, the two images that might prompt a discussion, and Richard, I might come to you uh, about this, uh, Jeff, is a view of Brick Lane, very much representing a sort of perhaps slightly stylized image of what diversity means in London today, something like 90% of the population uh, who've moved, that has moved into this country in the last 10 years is born outside, not London, outside the UK. So that's a reality that we're looking at. But this is a completely different image of uh, how to accommodate diversity. You freeze it in stone. You actually design around it. What this is, is a view of uh, a 
favelas in Sao Paulo on the left-hand side without much water or sewage or infrastructure, very poor. And on the right, an apartment block where the people are so wealthy that they have um, swimming pools on each terrace. So this is a condition which is actually incredibly familiar, unfortunately, uh, as we have circled the world. So I think this issue, as described by uh, Richard in, in, in the village, is clearly not possible here uh, and is might, might be possible there. David, would you like to comment on this and then Jeff? Um, I think it's, it's always interesting to me um, this notion of diversity and the, the sort of the, the coming together of um, different groups uh, into the sort of into the body of the city, and really the, there is this idea that somehow by kind of this kind of agglomerating of different groups, there's a, some there's some notion of cohesiveness. But in a way, there is a there is something which is I mean this Jane Jacobs discussion about Google Street, which I know quite well now, um, <laughs> in its new incarnation. Um, it, but this idea that somehow inherent in these things, something that she points to is this notion that actually the production of space in these areas is born out of a kind of conflict in a way, or the making of a boundary. And the boundary in a way somehow seems to be the kind of producer of a sort of uh, a way in which the spaces are somehow kind of um, sort of augmenting or sort of forming the kind of notion of the city. And in a way the kind of the entropy of that is the San Paolo image. Um, so there is this kind of really kind of inherent, um, for me, violence, um, but also uh, incredible fascination with the way in which the idea of the kind of cosmopolitan city, the city that's brought together, is this kind of sort of production from this very kind of actually distrustful position, actually this idea of distrust, rather than the idea of a kind of compassion or, or a kind of uh, affection for one another, which you might think might be the more humanistic kind of relationship. And that, in that, um, w and, and then you know that becomes the kind of idea of the public in the city. And I think that that's kind of very interesting discussion. That I sort of yeah. But, yeah. Well, cl clearly, quite a lot of people in Britain, as in Sao Paulo, would like to retreat behind some walls. Um, there are plenty of gated communities in London, though more often this is happening outside the city in in the creation of um, separated off. Uh, zones without fear of too much interaction with people who might be um, poor or violent or mentally ill. Um, uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a story to tell which says this, this is all bad and your previous image all good. Um, but if you peel a, a, a sort of layer below even that image you have before, it is a healthy image of people mixing up and eating at the same table. But it can be quite a superficial image of diversity. They may know very little about each other. They may be just tolerating each other, but that's about the limit of it. And around this particular place, in fact, much of the housing is much more segregated, essentially, than it was 20 years ago. Many of the schools will be 95% one race and another. And you actually have to dig a lot deeper to really see what's going on in terms of the dynamics of the city rather than just looking at face value at the leisure interactions. And the only final point I would say, which, which is a thing which fascinates me and I don't really understand, is the balance between the private and the public. Clearly to feel at home in a city, 
You have to have a private space. You need your fences. You need the places you can disappear. You also need the semi-private spaces where you and friends can get together without too much interaction and jostling and so on. And yet you also want the mixing of the public. And urban design has often gone most wrong either with seg segmentation, but also it's tried to force people into too much interaction, excessively large walkways, which then end up making people scared. Uh, over sort of large public spaces, which again end up being inhuman and intimidating, even sometimes they're, though they're trying to create a kind of classical agora. So, um, I mean, the, the, the point you're making, I think, uh, comes very much to the heart of what an urban designer, an urbanist, needs to do. And uh, in fact, I might bring in Richard Rogers on this. I mean, m m many times that we are faced, let's say, as uh, designers to create neighborhoods. There is a totally synchronous view of what should be. It should all happen in a short period of time. We'll come back to this later. But certainly there's no space, let's call it, uh, for the multi-layered uh, sort of dimensions that Richard Sennett talked about in this quote from Flesh and Stone. We, we talk about uh, people, uh, a space working for people. But which people? Young, old, as you've described, uh, in the village, there are at least four or five different cultural constituencies that work, use the space in, in a completely different way. They actually see the space in a different way. If it were photographed by one of these uh, different uh, ethnic uh, communities, you'd have five different photographs, probably, of what the street actually was like. But Richard, as a designer, as an urban designer, how, how do you deal with this issue of diversity? I'd like to go a step first, back. I mean, I don't think, you must be careful that we're not over that's all just quite for the world thing. Um, you know, as far as empower, neither work. I mean, no one can, it might be look charming to have, a, you know, lots of people overlapping, but I know I don't want to do in those slums. Uh, so we've got a problem, and there's a slight danger of the thing. Uh, that's really what we want to make nice, beautiful, where, of course, you're all nice, but that's a, a side. Sorry. Yeah, just I'll do a bit better. Okay. I'm, I'm saying we, that neither work, that neither in Sampala, neither the, the highly wealthy parts, which are totally separated, or the killing fields, which is what basically the slums are. Um, this is a social problem, and social problem is deeply rooted in the appalling inability of, of wealth distribution. And that, to me, is a much more serious problem in Canary Wharf in many ways. Uh, where we're back to this fact, which is why we've got the BNP there, is that it's a, you have a, a pocket of wealth and a tremendous area of amazing poverty. It's some of the poorest parts uh, of, West, of, the West, of Western Europe are right on the edge of Canary, of Canary, of Canary Wharf. Going back just for a step further, I think there's, and the concept of being over-romantic. London, in my opinion, has never been better, certainly during my life. There's no comparison with London to what it was even 15 years ago. You just need to, I mean, I just saw a very beautiful film about, uh, about London, about, I've forgotten its name, uh, about 1983. I thought I was in East Berlin during the sort of the communist era. You realize the move, the change, the use of the sidewalk, um, the use of the bars, the use of people actually talking to each other. A lot of it, of course, is to do with that, the ethnic mix which has grown. And this has changed this, especially, and London is the easier one to talk, has changed it for the better without, it, without it, any doubt. I think there's very little doubt in my mind that the Industrial Revolution was absolutely anti-city. 
Anybody who get out could get out. I keep on quoting that usual. You know, a, a worker in 1840, a worker in 1841, in Manchester, London, uh, life expectancy was 17. Of course, everybody got out. Um, I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, so we mustn't be too romantic about this. The city of the night, uh, ditto the car city. Uh, there's no question that the erosion of the city, just as it was about perhaps to pick up a bit uh, in the 20th century, was then given another great hit by the, car, the, the vehicle. Not just because, obviously, which is a critical problem about climate change, but of course because, again, it's nothing about... I mean, the city has this one constant thing. It's about the meeting of people, exchange of goods, exchange of ideas. So in that sense, I do think London has never been, been better. And I do think there's a revival of numerous cities. People are moving back. The, the compact city is coming, is coming together. I think in those terms, Emilia started to talk about the compact city, the, 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 a greater density of people, which doesn't mean greater taller buildings, it means greater density. The use of empty spaces, the creation of the right scale of public space. I agree again that you know, large spaces are as dangerous as no space often enough. Um, all this is, at least it's all now beginning to come out, the concept that the city is, has a role in, 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 its, in its public uh, domain. And I think in that sense, architects are more conscious of it. Um, again, it depends very much what, what is the political organization and how possible it is. But I've, um, as you can see, I can see I'm gonna be, tonight I'm going to be playing the, the optimistic person here. Richard, just uh, Richard Sennett. I mean, if you, just re reading that quote: "Difference and indifference coexist in the life of the village in New York." Do, do you see that in London? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what is your view, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, that you are, you are the chief planner of the Olympics. Uh, well, I, I think the fact that one is trying to create an instant city as a result of a, an event in 2012 is highly problematic from this point of view. Uh, and, but I think that applies to any large-scale project of that sort. The risks of actually creating something which doesn't accommodate uh, with that sort of resilience and flexibility um, the, the differences and indifferences that we don't know of today is something which is not being handled uh, well. But, what about you? <laughs> well, I, I, I tell you a story about, uh, about uh, and I remember this very well, because I remember where I uh, 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 wrote this passage. Uh, in, after the Civil War ended in Lebanon, um, I became involved with a group of uh, planners who were trying to uh, restore uh, Beirut. Lebanon had been in a 14-year civil war. Uh, people who had lived with each other as uh, very close proximity to each other uh, as uh, neighbors, Christians um, uh, and, and Muslims, even a few Jews uh, uh, still, uh, suddenly at the time of the Civil War uh, uh, in the city it became intolerable their presence to each other and it was like almost putting a match to something that nobody expected would ever burn because people had been living side by side for literally centuries Civil War ended a uh, group of us uh, we met at 
MIT, various meetings, and began uh, trying to plan, rebuild the city in some way that this surprising flashpoint phenomenon wouldn't occur again. We focused on what's called the Green Belt, which was a fighting line between uh, Christians and Muslims in the city for 14 years. We had been so much fighting, so much destruction, and it's such a fertile part of the world that trees had grown up, you know, buildings shot off on their sides, a kind of no man's land in which a kind of jungle had grown up. And our thought was, what kind of building can we do along this green line, which would somehow prevent this com confluence of difference and indifference? Uh, we tried to solve it by purely visual means, by intermixing with differences of ethnicity, intermixing differences of functions. So the Green Line um, had clinics, it had lots of shops, um, had housing made out of these destroyed half buildings and so on. It sort of worked. It's destroyed again. The Israelis bombed it in the most recent conflict in Lebanon. But it, it haunted me, this notion that the mere presence, I wasn't, you know, when I was writing about New York, I was thinking about Beirut, that the mere presence of living indifference um, is not the same thing as knitting together uh, a society. And it's haunted me ever, ever since. Uh, when I hear a lot of discussions about multiculturalism, I'm seeing Beirut in my mind. These places where people, literally neighbors across the hall, began shooting at each other. You know. So that's for me the problematic in, in, in this. I'm very interested in your comment, David, about this. Be because... Yeah. David? I, yeah. th I think this is, it's definitely something that I think needs more debate because it, I mean for me, I mean I, I sort of took, I take it, okay, I take it by, I was kind of also referring to some research that I've been doing recently which is looking at the nature of even cities in Africa um, and this notion of um, um, the production of space that kind of yeah. makes these cities and the idea that actually traumas kind of produce these spaces and produces these conditions. I mean, if you look at any um, sort of independent city in Africa, it's a lamination of you know four or five different conflict points which come together to make the identity of the city uh, from its colonial past or its empire building further back through to um, sort of ethnic conflicts that are happening from Jos in Nigeria right through to Kigali or, you know, it's this, it's, it's very fascinating, this idea of, at once, this idea of the, the idea of the city as a kind of an agglomerating body, but also this kind of trauma that it's actually being produced out of these conflicts, and then these conflicts being these things that we need to negotiate. And I'm, I, I just wonder if there's maybe another way of thinking about the production of the city, which can start to kind of, I don't know if it is, because it's inherently maybe a political issue, but I'm not sure. 
Do you know what I mean? It's a really tough thing, but I'm sort of struggling with this. this I think what this I'd issue. like to do is move on from this point uh, on, on to an issue which really deals with the great detail point of design. Wait. Aren't you unhappy you were invited? Totally. So I'm going to try and control you. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've actually just, I've just come back from um, Beirut myself, and I think one of the extraordinary uh, senses of the part of the city which has been rebuilt very rapidly in the last 10 years is the um, absence of relationship between uh, the buildings and the street, which is the an yes. total antithesis of everything that that city has and many other Mediterranean cities has been about. So let me move on to this detailed point which I think relates to this um, okay. before opening up again the issue of the <coughs> city as our final discussion. And this is to do with the tactile city. Uh, and it's again a quote from the Fall of Public Man. And it refers to the international school of uh, modern 20th century design. The international school was dedicated to a new idea of visibility in the construction of large buildings. Walls almost entirely of glass framed with thin steel supports allow the inside and the outside of a building to be dissolved to the least point of differentiation. This technology permits the achievement of what Siegfried Gindian calls the idea of the permeable wall, the ultimate invisibility. But these walls are also hermetic barriers. Lever House was the forerunner of a design concept in which the wall, though permeable, also isolates the activities within the building form from the life of the street. In this design concept, the aesthetics of visibility and social isolation merge. I think that's the key point, that in these buildings, which represent that area there, the aesthetics of visibility and social isolation merge. Now, I've done something which is probably unfair, is to actually use two of David's buildings, and they're not great photographs, David, doesn't matter. But they make the point that there are other ways of using the same materials, in this case, glass and steel, uh, to, in fact, achieve a very different uh, end. David. Okay, I'll just, with that quote, I th I, it's a bit, um, a bit weird to use my work, but in a way, actually, Richard is a kind of, um, your work is a kind of point in which these works are somehow formulated, because there are, there are four key things in trying to do this work that I was trying to address with this notion of glass. One, that glass isn't um, a material which somehow seamlessly connects us to nature in the way that it's believed in the sort of high point of these buildings that somehow we're somehow re the, the wall is dissolved and we're connected back to nature and we're absolutely in it. We are isolated from it. It is an opaque material because it's, as we know, as glass becomes more and more pure, we realize that actually the glass of the 20s is actually extremely opaque to us. But two, also the idea that somehow um, that the, the architecture of glass um, doesn't have to be this highly machined, highly efficient model which comes from the kind of capitalist idea of kind of, you know, um, making a kind of uh, a pure um, sort of, as it were, the office building is a pure extrusion of a type that becomes repeated and becomes a kind of almost like a machine. That somehow the glass building can somehow make a relationship. So in these buildings, they relate directly to the place of the public, which is the market, and they take on the notion of the market, which is the colours of the market stalls, as a kind of contextualising idea. So it kind of tries to kind of use glass within a new idea of contextualism, a kind of contextualism with its. With, its, with a sort of sense of what the public, trying to upscale that space of that public realm to the scale of a building. 
whether it succeeds or not is another story, but that's its one discussion which is directly related to that. And thirdly, then to say that actually in the kind of dense urban, sort of not so wealthy parts of the city, that the, the preciousness of a cultural building is more than just the sum of solving the function, but it in itself becomes a space to allow a kind of public to emerge. So in a way, the building is, is a kind of almost, I mean, I started to say landscape, but I don't mean literally like an architectural folding form, but I meant like a plate where you would have nooks and crannies and places to passage, and that the building would not be an object, but it would somehow try to kind of laminate itself very much into the context. So that's what's kind of... Jeff, you're a user of this building, are you not? Um, my, will you comment on, in a way, the social landscape and how around it and how these buildings uh, deal with this interface? Well, it, it's a very, very social street, that. I mean, it's full of activity and people walking and people selling things. It's a, I mean, it's a market economy, if ever there was one. And as you say, you've opened it up. People love using the building because it feels very alive, very open, very convivial, uh, and also has actually books in it, strange things like that. I mean, th there is a... <laughs> Despite <laughs> the strange name, right? <laughs> Idea Store. I mean, there is a very different idea of the library, which is the inner sanctum. And I don't think that's necessarily a worse idea than the idea store. Similarly, the, the quote about glass as a sort of creating a, uh, you know, a, a seal from the street, there are many traditions, Middle East, I think Africa too, where you deliberately try and keep the street away from the, you know, the private space of the home and the inner courtyard and so on, and because they are different. It's, it's not always appropriate to try and link them together. This happens in this case, is, it is right, and it works brilliantly well. Richard. <laughs> I remember a, a wonderful essay by Colin Rowe on transparency, just as a aside, uh, and pointing out, which is obvious, I suppose you could say, is that basically glass is black. <laughs> you know, yes, because if there's no lights behind it, it's black, you know, and most of the time that you're looking at it, it's black, um, and it's only when it's backlit that it becomes transparent. But still, of course, glass gives you fantastic opportunities because you can play with that, with that transparency. But perhaps the more interesting part of that essay, if I remember rightly, uh, was very much about that concept of shadow being transparency. In other words, when you play with shadow, which can be Greek columns, if you like, but the gap between those things, the gap between the, the solids, is another form of transparency, and often a more inviting form of transparency. So that sort of juxtaposition, that dialogue between the sh sh light and shadow and glass. And I think is a, there is a danger of seeing glass as being always transparent. Certainly, um, I do find it, uh, glass is a, a mildly difficult uh, material, but it's also, at the same time, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic material. Um, I think it's all about street activities. You've got it here. I think it's wonderful to have those street activities. And therefore, it becomes transparent, both visually and you can enter into that place to act. I think it's very good. On, on the point of um, street activity, Richard Sennett, I, I'm, one of the things I will always remember uh, reading early on was your story of the invention of plate glass and the effect that that had on cafe society and everything that sort of followed on from that. Would you remind us of that? Well, it's, uh, it, it is a wonderful story. I must say, I, I, I think I'm probably the only social philosopher who's ever obsessed about glass as a physical medium. Uh, and so it is an obsession, so you have to forgive me about that. Uh, 
Um, a huge discovery was made in the 19th century, technological discovery, which was that you could hold large sheet, you could roll large sheets of glass, and you could encase them in iron or uh, in steel frames, and that they could be permanently set into buildings. Uh, that a window, a, a glass used for a window, no longer had to be something that opened. That you could create uh, a sealed object, which seemed to be entirely transparent, framed with these, these glass panels. And the first use of this was in the department stores of Paris in the 1860s and 70s. And suddenly, instead of having most shops before then in Paris, they did have windows or grates. Uh, but during the day, in order to sell things, the grates were up or the windows would open, and people actually touched the things that they wanted to buy. Now, you have behind glass the objects that people could consume, which were perfectly apparent to them, but to which they lost a physical relationship. And what happens to social philosophy when it gets a hold of a sort of juicy fact like this is it starts talking about dematerialization. Because here was something in which the operations of the eye were divorced from those of touch, smell, and in buildings like not this lever house, sun. So I got very interested in something which the only other social philosopher I know who is obsessed with glass, Michel Foucault, began to uh, think about in terms of the issue of surveillance. And how something is perfectly visible and yet inaccessible to you. That's the whole story of discipline and punishment. But for me, it seemed to be, and I have to say it was a metaphor, uh, ways many materials are used so that this illusion of something being available to you and yet withdrawn tactile from you uh, comes, comes into being. What I find so interesting about what both of you have done is that, I mean, these are fixed glass plates that you have, and Humpy do is fixed glass plates. Is, um, Lloyd of London fixed glass plates? No, not all. Well, what it doesn't do is arouse that same uh, um, illusion uh, of accessibility. The buildings are physically, as objects, much more, both Bobur and the ideas are much more permeable objects. Uh, but they're also much more opaque. And as I say, for me, as a, if somebody who thinks about sort of the theory of physical things, this has been incredibly suggestive. You can think about it, too, in terms of our earlier discussions, in terms about, uh, about the net and communication on the web. You can instantly know what people think, but you, you only see a surface. And what's sealed is other 
whole kind of dominance given to, to transparency in culture, as I have to say in politics, has some of this notion. Transparency isolates and hides sometimes. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, one of the, the fascinating things happening in cities at the moment and in this city is a lot of glass is going up still. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's this great move to the, the edible city, the tactile city, to filling every available space with... Uh, things to grow, things to eat, things to pick, things to touch. And I think this is partly a reaction against the Absolutely. oppressive claim transparency, even if it is often obscure, of, of city life. Um, now, there is it, Whitechapel doesn't have many orchards in it yet, um, but maybe this is, <laughs> this is perhaps the next step. Yeah. Let's take um, the argument um, to, in a way, its Ooh. natural conclusion. Uh, we started uh, talking about um, cities and democracy and looked at the issue of diversity and we've narrowed now into issues of design and how that relates to a sense of urbanity. But I think one of the biggest issues which uh, affects many of us who are thinking about how to change cities, it goes right to the heart of your question about the Olympics. It goes, I think, right to the heart of many of the projects that um, Richard and his um, colleagues are designing for new towns uh, around the world, whether it's China or elsewhere, is the issue of how do you design for something which is in continuous um, uh, growth and change. So it deals with the issue of time. And um, in The Conscious of the Eye, Richard uh, wrote this passage, which again refers in some detail to parts of uh, New York, but obviously uh, it has general application. Buildings are now much less flexible in form than the rows, crescents, and blocks of the past. The lifespan of a modern skyscraper is meant to be 40 or 50 years, though steel skeletons could stand much longer. Service stacks, wiring, and plumbing are planned so that a building is serviceable only in terms of what it was originally intended for. It is much harder to convert a modern office tower to mixed uses of offices, apartments, than it is to convert a 19th century factory or 18th century Roblox to these uses. In this shortened time frame, the integrity of form acquires a special meaning. The original program for a building controls its brief, life, its brief lifetime of use. The physical urban fabric has thus become more rigid and brittle. More rigid and brittle. I think this is a word we'll talk about, two words we'll talk about. But I'm actually going to illustrate this with two images. One is Richard Rogers' building, the Pompidou Center, which he did with Renzo Piano now 30-plus years ago, which was designed very much, Richard, around the concepts of long lice and loose fit, and exactly trying to deal with this issue that uh, Richard Sennett has written about. And I want to contrast it very unfairly to this could be anywhere. It's an image by a wonderful... Italian photographer Oliviero Barbieri of, uh, in fact, Shanghai, which I think symbolizes just with this image, even the, the grain of the, of the photography, of how rigidity and uh, brittleness, in a way, nearly come together. But Richard, if I could ask you to perhaps comment on this notion of the life of buildings and how does one plan for incompleteness? Everybody knows the sentence, the only constant change. Sorry. I have to remember these things. 
as saying the, the famous sort of sentence, the only constant is change. And I have no doubt that change, well, we all know, change gets faster throughout history. You just need to see the advances in the, in the development of whether it's elements or whatever it is, you see a continuous change. Change is neither good or bad, I'm just saying the, the speed of change gets greater and greater. greater. Um, I would suggest, and I'll come back to the building, I would suggest though that much of what the 40-year span of a building has very little to do with the building, it's to do with the market. Um, and that the fact that you know, within our materialistic society we can make more money by pulling it down and putting it up. Of course it could stay up there. It could, as, as, as you say. Uh, here it could stay up. In terms of the Pompidou Centre, which I designed with Renzo, a wonderful team, um, including Peter Rice, a great engineer. Amongst them, the, the, perhaps the driving concept, and I will sort of quote the first couple of lines of the report, a place for all people, all ages, all creeds, for the old and the young, and for the poor and the rich. It was meant to be a, a sort of open-ended structure. It was also very conscious, I think, that we didn't want glass to take that point, except because we couldn't handle it without it being a barrier. But we did want permeability making that very important, and you've made that, uh, different, that difference between permeability and glass. Glass can be permeable, but basically it often is not. Again, the, the idea was you, it was a framework. Now, historically, the modern movement has always said the plan is the, is the, is the generator. I have vivid memories of being in, when we did this competition, I was against it in Pompidou Center, but I, it's not the time to discuss it, but I was very much against the concept of doing a monument. I didn't like the idea of centralized culture. I mean, I was a left winger after all. Who, who wants centralized culture? <laughs> centralized culture. Anyhow, we thought, let's see if we can make something which really could adapt, could really change to the cha changing needs. We, when Philip Johnson, who was, I suppose, the senior juror, came over once and he came to the office and said, Where, I want to see the plans. I said, there are no plans. And he said, it's impossible. And I said, there's a section, but there is no plans because everything changes. And obviously on plan, everything is changing. You can have your library where it is, you can have wherever you want, you can have your music wherever you want within acoustic limitations, um, you can have your museum and so on, offices, etc. So the, I very much conscious of I believe in change. We separated and I often used a diagram which looked at the, different long, the longevity of different parts and we said streets, a couple of thousand years, yeah, there are lots of the streets still you know, I'm just about to go off to, uh, uh, to, to, to uh, Syria, well, you go to Damascus, there are quite clearly streets, including street called straight, uh, which are some thousands of years. There is that. But as you move it up the hierarchy or down the hierarchy, uh, that you start to get things changing faster and faster. Again, as is stated in this uh, uh, paragraph, this, the main limitation to modern change is its mechanical services. And that is really, I mean, mechanical services is just like any, an engine of, your, of a car. It has a very limited life, what's limited. Depends whether you're doing Rolls-Royce, but we don't do Rolls-Royces, so it's limited life. So we said, okay, well, take those services out. You can get to them, you can change them, you can adapt them, and they're the ones that are going to change as the, as the activities will change. So if it becomes a university, and we went through this sort of thing, or if it becomes uh, an office building, you won't need that much of those mechanical services, or you may need more of those mechanical services. This is even more consistent with Lloyd's. Lloyd's of London, the basic brief was we've, we've, we've 
changed buildings four times in 50 years. We're not in the business of building. We want a building that will, uh, will work in the next century. But we made that next century just about. Um, but the concept, the idea was, well, we're going, if it may change again. The, the word came, a university. Certainly, it, wasn't going to be, it was unlikely to be a marketplace in the way that the laws used to be, to be. So change is built in. You can do certain things to separate the parts so that the parts which are, have short life can be uh, got at. Of all the things that the Pompidou deals with, and in my opinion, the part that it deals with most successfully is the continuity of the public domain. I am passionate about the concept that you can't deal with a public domain on two dimensions. You have to look at it continuously in three, dimi in three dimensions. Here the idea was the, big, the piazza would continue up the facade. There would be what was then termed streets in the air. The escalators would be the enjoyment of moving through space. The elevators would be exactly the same. So, but most important of all, there would be terraces and transparency and so on. The building actually was more transparent than what you see. It was actually about 50% higher than what you see. It was, it was already pretty high until we arrived in Paris and they said, forget it, you can't have a building. The fireman came out and said, the tallest building, in public building in Paris cannot be taller than the longest fire ladder, which is fascinating. <laughs> and so that's the height. That's established the, the top floor of the Pompidou, the, the, the wooden floor. The, the wooden, well, the metal uh, ladder. Uh, so, so the only point I want to say is these are sort of abstract things that change the building and you are continuous. So Pompidou certainly changed a lot. I mean, for instance, when we started with the Pompidou Center, books were the popular thing. By the time we'd finished it, really, everything was read online. There was the electronics that taken uh, taking place. Um, art of the, ninth, of the early, uh, of the sort of second, of the I'm going to call it, uh, early 20th century, was completely changed in the second half of the 20th century. So all those things were adapted and changed. Some departments collapsed, some departments flourished and so on. So in that sense, I think it has worked. Um, and the public space, the piazza, certainly is probably the, the most successful part of the public piazza. And the fact that people can want to watch people, that's what we really live in the cities for. I love watching people. Um, so the idea was people could look up on the facade and see people going across it, and even more important, people from the facade could look down to the piazza and, and across. R Richard, Paris. but can I just ask and then David to follow? Can you, do you think today you can apply those principles of flexibility, which resilience, which you feel have worked, to town planning? Yes, I think, and I, I don't see any reason why not. I mean, the complexity of the most difficult building to, 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 to design is an office building. The problem is that the developer always thinks he's got the perfect answer, and that is the most the successful office he finished last week or last month. Yeah. Therefore, you're fixed with that, with that building, and that is the most difficult thing to do. David? Just pick up on that with Richard. I mean, that's. I think that the the, the 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 huge difficulty with building at the moment is that really, as we kind of develop um, um, sort of other other sort of uh, um, associates that work with us, the kind of the, the notion of efficiency and of kind of pulling as much as we can out of what we're building, which then kind of for, forces us to focus on kind of delivering very precisely exactly which that which is written in that what I call the briefing document of our project becomes really, I think, for me, the kind of stranglehold um, on, on architecture right now, to deliver exactly what's been kind of priced, measured, and, and laid out. And that actually the kind of joy that an architectural project can pull out of a, a place, the kind of relationships and connections that can come out from um, a, kind of a, a kind of thorough analysis of the place, not beyond just the kind of economics of building. 
has become kind of part of the kind of difficulty of urbanism, I think, and also architecture. But I think that, sort of just finishing with that, there is a kind of a opportunity to kind of look at building, especially now that we live in an age where energy and building is no longer just a kind of, a kind of zero-sum game, that it actually becomes something that we do have to think about much more carefully. But actually, I think that there is a kind of opportunity to think about the building of cities and the building of buildings much more. Yeah, I mean, I think this but, is, <laughs> well, this is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's definitely the end game of a certain kind of model of plentiful in the world and going on endlessly. But I, we can't Jeff, have that. On this point. Um, I, I work at the Young Foundation in, in, in East, East End, but we have two buildings built in 1690, one building built in 1970. The two old ones are, in fact, much more usable than the new one, and there happen to be two organizations working on aging issues who are in the 1970 building who comment as they complain about uh, aspects of it that we are the first generation where human life expectancy is significantly longer than building life expectancy. And that does transform our view of cities. But I just want to follow up what, what David said, because I think there's a really important, much more generic design principle here, which applies as much to political constitutions and universities and buildings, which is if you optimize, if your design attempts to optimize anything, it's bound to end up suboptimal because it can't cope with change. And if you, the alternative, which is sometimes difficult in buildings and with planning, is you have to build in incompleteness, to use Richard's word, words, in a sense, leeway and capacities to learn and adapt. And this is a design principle which is forgotten again and again in almost every sphere of life. Now, as many as you know in this room, we, this session is sandwiched in between Tony Giddens and the Archbishop of Canterbury. So it's, it's, a tough, uh, it's a tough situation. And uh, in three minutes, we have to vacate the room. So, of course, I'm not someone who's going to try and make the link between the preceding session and uh, the theoretical concerns that were raised there and what Jeff was talking about now. But there is a moment that you look at this image behind me and you think of the notions of rigidity and brittleness of the urban fabric and you think of the same notions applied to say financial regulation or the banking system or forms of governance. I think there's something there which might form the basis of a new book, Richard, but I'd like you to wind up and connect these strands. Which will be read in paper, not online. <laughs> Richard, some final thoughts on this notion. Uh, well, just thank you for coming. No, not that. <laughs> no, 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 not that. No. I have to work more. Yeah. No, is there a link between this brittleness in well, society I mean, and, and I, the Jeff Arctic? has really said what, uh, what I would say to you. This uh, quote is encased in something about, really a debate about politics, which is uh, that the attempt uh, to find a finished form is, is always self-destructive. And uh, I was thinking of this kind of Jeffersonian ideal that we should have uh, a, a kind of overthrow every, what is it, every 32 years? I can't remember what the, it's, he gave it a precise number of years, something like that. Uh, political forms, and um, it's uh, it's a it's just a curious dialectic between the idea of getting something complete and getting something that can't breathe and live in time. Uh, but breathing and living in time means that um, you adapt rather than destroy, 
things lose their form, they get to be a kind of incrustation, rather than simply presence or absence. None of the children of people in Shanghai um, who grow up will have any memory of these places. And um, they'll be taken down, which is not adaptative change, it's not Jeffersonian change, it's just presence and absence, completion and destruction. And, and that's what I was getting at in, it's a political argument using this kind of is that okay? Richard, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I'd like to um, thank Judy Wiseman for organizing this event, and it continues, and Olivia for getting everyone here. I know Polly Toynbee did uh, at the last moment say she couldn't come. Susie Hall again for helping structure this event. But will you all join me in thanking Jeff, David, and the two Richards? Thank you. Thank you.